Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Informed Catholic. My name is Nechabar, and this is going to be episode 111. We are now in Saturday, the end of the octave of uh, Easter, uh, the first week of Easter. Uh, we're still going to be in Easter for a while. So... Um, I'm going to read, uh, again, continue our little um, puzzling exploration with this strange um, attitude towards Judas Iscariot coming from the church clergy, the authority in the Vatican, including Pope Francis. So um, let's begin first with the entrance antiphon in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Lord brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of rejoicing. Okay, let's go to the Gloria. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to people of goodwill. We praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you, we give you thanks for your great glory. Lord God, Heavenly King, O God, Almighty Father, Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten Son, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father. You take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. You take away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. You are seated at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. For you alone are the Holy One, you alone are the Lord, you alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so let's begin with the reading. Okay. Hold on. Sorry. Pages are kind of stuck here. <laughs> Okay, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, verse 13 to 21. It is impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. Okay, observing the boldness of Peter and John and perceiving them to be uneducated, ordinary men, the leaders, the elders, the scribes, were amazed and they recognized them as the companions of Jesus. Then, when they saw the man who had been cured standing there with them, they could not say anything in reply. So they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin and, the, and conferred with one another, saying, What are we to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that a remarkable sign was done through them, and we cannot deny it, but so that it may not be spread any further among the people. Let us give them a stern warning never again to speak to anyone in this name. They called them back and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John, however, said to them in reply, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to obey you rather than God, you be the judges. It is impossible for us not to speak about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them, 
finding no way to punish them on account of the people who were all praising God for what had happened. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Psalm 118 and the response is, I will give thanks to you for you have answered me. Alleluia. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. My strength and my courage is the Lord. He has been my savior. The joyful shout of victory in the tents of the just. I will give thanks to you for you have answered me. Alleluia. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord has struck with power. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. Though the Lord has indeed chastised me, yet he has not delivered me to death. I will give thanks to you, for you have answered me. Alleluia. Open to me the gates of justice. I will enter them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The just shall enter it. I will give thanks to you, for you have answered me and have been my Savior. I will give thanks to you, for you have answered me. Alleluia. Alleluia, Alleluia. Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us, re let us be glad and rejoice in it. Alleluia, Alleluia. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 16, 9 to 15. Go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark, to St. Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told his companions, who were mourning and weeping, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe her. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them, walking along the way into the uh, to the country. They returned and told the others, but they did not believe them either. But later, as the eleven were at table, he appeared to them and rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had been raised. He said to them, Go into the whole world and proclaim the gospel to every creature. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I was listening to a Michael Voris talk the other day. He gave a, a Lenten retreat, which is very interesting. And he talked about Spy Wednesday, which is the day that we set, we set aside during Lent to commemorate, to remember that the betrayal of Judas. And, um, and I think, of course, we could meditate on that forever. We have an article coming up, so I'm not going to focus on that. I want to focus more on the, the readings we have, the book of Acts and Mark. And what I do want to point out, I think what he did point out, one thing on his talks, is how the enemies of Christ, how the Sadducees and the Pharisees paid attention to his words far more closely than the way the apostles did before 
the events, the, you know, before the events leading to the passion. You know, obviously, they paid attention to the resurrection. So they re they requested from Pilate to put guards at the tomb, to put Roman guards, which they, to, to put, because they knew that that would have more of a, of an authority being Roman, a Roman seal put at the tomb. Of course, there were Jewish guards at the tomb as like an insurance thing, a safety thing. And that's exactly what happened. The apostles didn't pay attention to this. They didn't pay attention to a, a, a lot of things he said. They interpreted it differently. Michael Voris pointed out one of the things you look at it is that how James and John's mother requested that one of her sons be placed on his right and his left during his kingdom. There was uh, an earthly interpretation they put to the whole thing, you know, sort of like we're going to make it, we're going to be the, the stewards, we're going to be the men of authority in the new messianic kingdom. Not far from Judas's thinking. Judas saw Jesus as an investment, as a meal ticket. Michael Voris pointed out to several things that could have led to Judas's thinking, but like I said, we're gonna go we're gonna go into that article right after this. But I want to focus on their lack of faith. Um notice in the book of Acts, that they were brought to the Pharisees and the Pharisees took notice. They recognized them as men who followed Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. And they also recognized them as men who were uneducated, who had no education. <clears throat> That's that they took notice. Now, also, they did take notice of the crippled man who sat by the beautiful gate, beautiful gate, not far from the protocols of Solomon, where the miracle of, of Jesus is um, where he where he healed the man who was crippled, the man who sat with all the other sick and ailing, waiting for the troubling of the waters the troubling of the water. When angel of the Lord would go down, trouble the waters. Whoever gets in there first gets healed. They recognized the man, but um, they could not ignore that everybody, everybody knew the man was, was, a, was a, a handicap. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the, the authorities could not ignore that either. So they could not ignore the fact that a miracle has taken place. But they didn't rejoice in the miracle. Miracles to these men, especially messianic miracles, was a threat to their status quo. That's, if you notice, that's what they're constantly afraid of. They don't want their authority taken away from them. The power, it's avarice, avarice, greed. Not just to have money, 
but the power to tell people what to do. Money was money they got. But sometimes when you have the money, for some people it's not enough. Some people want more than that. That's this this is a factor a fact here. It's a it's it's basically it happens unfortunately in the church, as well as as we can see it happens in secular authority. For some people, the money is all that they want. And they don't want the complexity. They don't want the spotlight on themselves. For others, it's not it's not just money, but they they want more. They want more. It could be psychological. A lot of those things, Michael Forrest pointed out, it could be a lot of things. And that this is something we can go go into forever. Some people can be very very simple, and some people are not very very simple. You know money for some people and keep a low key find a way to get the, get your hands on the money and keep a low key for some people unfortunately it's not enough and so they want more we see this in in this case it's it's the threat of Jesus of Nazareth it's the threat of messianic authority they want the people to keep believing the Messiah is coming. But Caiaphas and Annas, as far as they're concerned, let the people keep hoping he's coming. Let the people keep expecting him. But as far as we're concerned, while we're alive, while we're in power, we're in, we're in authority, anyone who claims to be the Messiah, get rid of him. So that's... That's pretty much the rule. Now, in the case of the miracle in Mark's gospel, Mary Magdalene was the Mary Magdalene and some women were the first to see him, and then the problem here is this doesn't make the apostles look good. As a matter of fact, nothing makes them look good. In any of the four Gospels before this, they had lack of faith. They were greedy for power. They wanted power and authority. They didn't know, they didn't believe in him. I mean, Mary's resume doesn't make her look good. Possessed, seven demons, possibly an illicit lifestyle. Um, you know, li you know, living as a prostitute or a woman of uh, bad reputation. Uh, the apostles, fishermen, not really educated. Jesus didn't call Pharisees. He didn't call um, scribes. He didn't call any of those kind of people. He called <laughs> people far away from scriptural scholarship they were probably pious men who attended synagogue maybe i mean you know they were somewhat pious but none of them were scholars none of them were pharisees none of them were scribes none of them were students of rabbis and that that in ancient israel 
that in, in Jesus' day was a big deal. You, you know, who did you study under? You're going to get people asking that question because that was the resume back then. Which teacher did you study under? What school did you study under? Which synagogue did you attend? None of them could say that. None of them could say that. But what people notice is how Jesus taught with authority. Now, when the resurrection happened, it was women who were there first. Mary Magdalene saw him. Right? Mary Magdalene saw him. That's not exactly a great resume, a good, a good way of upselling your religion, trying to win converts. That the woman who was possessed with seven demons and had a very questionable lifestyle was the first one to be to to see him alive. And then two disciples leaving Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. John doesn't say Emmaus. I mean, Mark doesn't say Emmaus, but he mentions the two of them on the road. Didn't even recognize him at first. And none of his inner circle, the, 12, the 11, or 10 at this time, um, believed them. And they were, live, they were hiding in the upper room like terrified mice. Not exactly a good way of, uh, of, of selling, selling this new religion, right? No, it isn't. But that's what makes it more interesting. For some people, I want to hear more of this. I want to hear more of this. I mean, think about it. It actually, it's more, it's entertaining. If not the entertainment of the, uh, of the story lures you it would lure you in it would it would probably lure a lot of people in that they want to hear more of this because it's not like other 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 ways of other i guess you can say religions right usually the chosen one was would say i had a vision no this doesn't begin that way it begins like with an encounter <clears throat> But in an unusual way, it makes them look like bumbling idiots. And that's, and, and that's what a lot of people are thinking. I got to listen to this. This is really strange. That's what gets, I mean, that's how I look at it. That's how I see it. I mean, if I, if you were living back then, you just want to hear this story because when you want to, you want a good, you want a good laugh, but then suddenly you realize, wow. And the way they're telling it, it's not like other people. They're telling the same story. You listen to the followers, it all connects. It sounds, you know, and then suddenly you're 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 caught in. You realize these guys are telling the truth. No one would tell this. No one, you know, no one they're not they're not trying, they're not they're not making this up. And so you see, I think that's how people get it, but then they their reverence for the master, Jesus' words. They're not making this up, you realize. They're telling the truth. That's why this sounds different. It's the truth. 
you know, and the traitor, Judas, one of his own betrayed him. One of his own, and then his closest friend, the, the big fisherman, this guy denied him three times. That's why Mark's gospel is often looked on as Peter's gospel because there's more of an intimacy to it. You know, it's there's there's more of a psychological um, uh, tone to it. You can tell Peter has been troubled by this. He carried this with the rest of his life. Okay, let's move on to um, the article. Okay, this is an article from First Things, uh, The Population of Hell by Avery Cardinal uh, Dulles, May 2003. Sometimes the complaint is heard that no one preaches about hell any longer. The subject of hell, if not attractive, is at least fascinating uh, as any reader of Dante's Inferno or Milton's Paradise Lost can testify. Equally fascinating and decidedly more pressing is the question of how many of us may be expected to go there when we die. As we know from the Gospels, Jesus spoke many times about hell. Throughout his preaching, he holds forth two and only two final possibilities for the human existence. The one being everlasting happiness in the presence of God and the other everlasting torment in the absence of, uh, you know, one being the everlasting happiness in the presence of God, the other everlasting torment in the absence of God. He describes the fate of the damned under a great variety of metaphors, everlasting fire, outer darkness, tormenting thirst, the gnawing, the gnawing worms, and weeping and gnashing of teeth. In a parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus indicates that some will be condemned. The Son of Man says to the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's Matthew 25, verse 40, 41. In the Gospel of John, which says comparatively little about hell, Jesus is quoted as saying, The hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the Father's voice and come forth, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 28 to 29. The apostles, understandably concerned, asked, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Without directly answering their question, Jesus replied, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Luke chapter 13, verse 23 to 24. The parallel passage from Matthew, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Matthew chapter 7 verse 13 to 14. In the parable in the parable immediately following this exchange Jesus speaks of those who try to come to the marriage feast but are told depart from me all you workers of iniquity there you will weep and gnash your teeth Luke chapter 13 verse 27 to 28 in another parable that of the wedding guest who is cast out for not wearing the proper attire Jesus declares, many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, take in their obvious meaning passages such as these give the impression that there is a hell and that many go there more, in fact, than are saved. The New Testament does not tell us many words that any particular person is in hell. But several statements about Judas can hardly be interpreted otherwise. Jesus says that he has kept all those whom the Father had given him except the son of perdition. John chapter 17 verse 12. At another point, Jesus calls Judas a devil. John chapter 6 verse 70. And yet again, he says of him, it would be better for that man if he had never been born. Matthew 26, verse 24, Mark 14, verse 21. If Judas were among the saved, these statements could hardly be true. Many saints and doctors of the church, including St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, have taken it as revealed truth that Judas was a reprobate. Some of the fathers placed the name of Nero in the same select company, but they do not give long list of names as Dante as Dante would do. Okay. So we obviously see from the first part that um that obviously he's claiming, he's making clear that there's a hell. And Jesus is saying that very few people would make uh, are going to make it that there are some people, if not a majority, they're not going to make it. So, and then he obviously here points that 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 it seems to reflect that Jesus is saying that Judas and uh, is there that Judas is damned into hell. He was uh, he. I mean, we've all we we went through this several podcasts. It would have been better that this man had never been born. Who wants to hear someone say that about you? It cuts through even even for 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 people who you know several two thousand years removed. It actually hits hard. It's it's like a knife. Who wants to hear? The Son of God say that about you. It's it's you know even for even for someone like like let's say for us, it's it's horrifying. Even to to hear this about Judas, he must have been an evil person, an evil apostle. He had to have been. All right, let's move on. 
references to punishment after death in the remind in the remainder of the New Testament simply confirm the teachings of the gospel. In the book of Acts, Paul says that those ordained to eternal life have believed his preaching, whereas those who disbelieved it have have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Acts chapter 13, verse 46 to 48. Peter's first letter puts the question, if the righteous man is scarcely to be saved, where will the impious and sinner appear? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 18. The book of Revelation teaches that there is a fiery pit where Satan and those who follow him will be tormented forever. It states at one point, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Revelations chapter 28, verse 8. Okay, that makes it quite clear there. I don't know why um, why we're having this rehabilitation. I mean, we went over it. I think it's psychological, like I said. I mean, it's still puzzling. I would like. I wish someone from that school of thought, or someone who could explain that school of thought, why they do this. Is it is it because they just don't have faith? This whole thing of saying, Pope Francis saying, I don't know if Judas is in hell. He's, he's, been, he's, he's been in the church all his life. He's a pope now. Why would he say this? Why would he contradict even this, this article here? Why would he contradict the church fathers? And I, you know, I keep coming back. It's their spiritual state. What's going on with them? It's psychological and spiritual. That's the only answer I can get. It's even though sometimes I'm I'm still over overwhelmed with questions. I mean, I feel sorry for them. I really do. I have to say, for these men who chose to go into the church, and someone said the other day that it's easier for them to put their faith in social justice, in in, in the social justice movement than to put their faith, than, than, than to teach the gospel. And I thought to myself, it sounds, I think that sounds valid. That's valid. That's valid. I think that's valid because it seems like it. They, they, they rather go with the social justice of the world rather than follow the teachings of Christ. And it sounds just like Fulton Sheen said, we are, we are going through this temptation with the spirit of the world, the spirit of the world and its, and its thinking. And instead what they do is they come back and they impose the spirit of the world on Christ and the church. You hear what happens after this thing with the with the rejection of same-sex unions, the church will not bless them. And all of them are saying that they're embarrassed and ashamed of the church. They're pretty much saying that they're embarrassed and ashamed of Christ. Because that's Christ is the church and the church is Christ. It's one of the same. 
That's right. And you see a nun and priests and people like James Martin, Father James Martin, and you see cardinals, you see the German bishops and cardinals. They they're putting the church they're putting the church and they're measuring they're saying the church fails to meet the standards of the world. That's that's what they I mean, this is this is it. This is it it matches it, even though it still leaves you mind boggled but maybe we shouldn't be but i'm still but i still am the testimony of paul is complex in his first letter to the thessalonians he speaks of the coming divine judgment in which jesus will inflict vengeance upon those who do not know god and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our lord jesus they shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 to 10. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul says that the impotent Jews are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. In writing to the Corinthians, he distinguishes between those who are being saved by the gospel and those who are perishing because of their failure to accept it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. In a variety of texts, he gives lists of sins that will exclude people from the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 to 6. And he tells the Philippians, Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. All right, let's continue. Some passages in the letters of Paul lend themselves to a more optimistic interpretation, but they can hardly be used to prove that salvation is universal. Okay. In Romans chapter 8 verse 19 to 21 Paul predicts that creation itself will be set free from its bondage of decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God but the text seems to refer to the world of nature it does not say that all human beings will achieve the glorious liberty in question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, Paul speaks of all things being ultimately subjugated to Christ, but he does not imply that subjugation means salvation. He presumably means that the demonic powers will ultimately be defected. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, he predicts that eventually every knee will bow to Christ and every tongue confess him. But this need not mean a confession that proceeds from love. In the Gospels, the devils proclaim that Jesus is the Holy One of God, but they are not saved by recognizing the fact. Okay, that the there's always been an argument. I know that like there's a church father 
I mean, I don't know if he's exactly, but I guess it depends on from which perspective, because you got the Eastern Fathers, and you got the, the Church of the East and the Western Church. Origen has often been one of those who often, um, and there's still arguments about whether Origen did teach this, where he over-spiritualizes. He's an Egyptian, a Greek-Egyptian, and he over-spiritualizes some of... Um, some scriptural passages that there's an over spiritualizing interpretation of of scripture passage and he's and there's been some cases where several people have done that that they over they 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 over spiritualize using the spiritual sense of interpretation and make it look like as though everything every everything is going to be saved and that's not true because we don't see that in the gospels we don't see that in Paul's writings Creation will, creation itself, which has fallen into sin because of the first Adam and the first Eve, appears will be redeemed, but doesn't mean every um, intelligent person. I mean, for example, the demons confess that Jesus is Lord, but doesn't mean they're going to be saved. No. And, and God is not going to violate free will. Especially since the fact that we see that a lot of people have this habit of over, uh, of wanting to believe all men eventually, we, we have a reasonable hope that all men are going to be saved. That's not possible. That, can, that goes against the dignity of God and God will not violate free will in that matter. I mean, I know Bishop Barron said that. I think he regrets saying that. I think he regrets saying that. I know that he he follows some school of thought, but I, I think maybe there's a part of him that, because he never really talks about that ever again. All right. Um, okay, let's go on here. I think we read this part here, right? Uh, but this is not the means, the confession that proceeds from love. The gospels, the devils proclaim that Jesus is the Holy One of God, but they're not saved by recognizing the fact. Okay. Um, Okay, here, okay, here, this is where we should. <clears throat> Equally unavailing is my opinion, is my opinion, are appeals to passages that say that God's plan is to reconcile all things in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. Although this is surely God's intent, he does not override the freedom that enables men and women to resist his holy will. The same may be said of the statement that God's desire all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. First Timothy chapter two, verse four. Paul is apparently seeking to stimulate the apostolic zeal of missionaries who will who will bring the self the saving truth of Christ to all who do not yet believe. The opposite the absolute necessity of faith for salvation is consistent theme in the writings of Paul. I see no reason that for ranking Paul among the universalists, you see, the idea, even though he admits himself equally unavailing as my opinion, are appeals to passages that say that God's plan is to reconcile all things in Christ, okay, which is in first, uh, which is in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, although this is surely God's intent, he does not override the freedom that enables men and women to resist his will. Okay, their free will. God will not override that. God will not violate the free will that he's given, given creatures like us. The same may be said of the statement that God's desire all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, which is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Paul is apparently seeking to stimulate the apostolic zeal of missionaries who will bring the saving truth of Christ to all who do not yet believe. The absolute necessity of faith for salvation is a consistent theme in the writings of Paul. I see no reason then for ranking Paul among the universalists. Okay, he admits, he wishes, this is his own personal opinion, I, you know, equally is unavailing, in my opinion, are appeals to passages. Yeah, I mean, everybody wants that. We all want to believe that the that God wants to save the whole world. But we, I mean, yes, he does. The salvation is for the whole world, but he will not violate free will. There are, there are some out there that want that, like Bishop Barron. The consistent teachings of the Catholic Church supports the idea that there are two class, classes, the saved and the damned. He's saying that a lot of the bishops today don't want to talk. They don't want to touch it. Three general councils of the church. Leon's, the, this Leon's, uh, the, of the first one, 1245. The second council of Leon, the first council of Leon, 1245. The second council of Leon, 1274. And Florence, 1439. Pope Benedict the the twelfth bull, uh, his uh, uh, I guess you could say but it's called a bull here, Benedictus Theos, the blessing of God. In thirteen thirty six, have taught that everyone who dies in the state of mortal sin goes immediately to suffer the eternal punishments of hell. This belief has has uh, perdured without question in the Catholic Church to this day and is repeated almost verbatim in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, Articles 1022 to 1035. Several local councils in the Middle Ages, without apparently in, intending to define the point, state in passing that some have actually died in a state of sin and been punished by eternal damnation. The relative number of the elect and the damned are not treated in any church documents, but have been subject of discussions among theologians, among the Greek fathers, Irenaeus, Basil, Cyril of Jerusalem, are typical in interpreting passages such as Matthew 22-14 as meaning that the majority will be consigned to hell. St. John Chrysostom, an astounding doctor of the Eastern tradition, was particularly pessimistic among thousands of people. There are not a hundred who will arrive at their salvation, and I am not even certain of that number so much. Perverse, 
perversity is the is there among the young and so much negligence among the old it's interesting okay let me read that again saint john chrysostom an outstanding doctor of the eastern um church was particularly pessimistic among the thousands of people there are not a hundred who will arrive at their salvation and i'm not even certain of that number so much perversity is there among the young and so much negligence among the old this sounds like today this sounds like today it sounds like I mean, he sounds like he's talking about like today this is an intro this is an article we, it's good to re revisit again Augustine may be taken as representative of Western fathers in his controversy with the Donatists and Crossonians. Um, I, I'm not, I know I'm not pronouncing their name correctly. Augustine draws upon Matthew and the book of Revelation to prove that he that the number of the elect is large, but he grants that the number of the ex, number is exceeded by by that of lost in the book. Uh, book 21 of his city of god he rebuts first the idea that all human beings are saved then that all the baptized are saved then that all baptized catholics are saved and finally that all baptized catholics who who uh, uh preserve persevere in the faith are saved he seems he seems to limit salvation to baptized believers who refrain from serious sin who, after sinning, repent and are not reconciled with God. That doesn't sound like much different today, right? The great scholars of the Middle Ages are not more, um, I can't pronounce this word, but I guess are not more different. Thomas Aquinas, who may stand as the leading representative, teaches clearly in the Summa Theologica, that God reprobate the God reprobates some persons. A little later, he declares that only God knows the number of the elect. But Thomas gives reasons for thinking that their number is relatively small, since our human nature is fallen, and since eternal bless blessedness is a gift far beyond the powers and merits of every created creature. It is to be expected that most human beings fall short of achieving that goal. The leading theologians of the Baroque period follow suit. Francisco Soares in his treatise, Francisco Soares in his treatise on predestination puts the question squarely. How many are saved? relying on the Gospel of Matthew, St. John Chrysostom, and St. Augustine, and Pope St. Gregory, he proposed the following estimation. If the question is asked about all men living between the creation and the end of the world, the number of the reprobates certainly exceeds that of the elect. This is to be expected because God, who who is not rightly known before the coming of Christ, and even since the time since since that time many remain in darkness if the term christian is taken to include heretics and schismatics and baptized apostates it would still appear that most are damned but if the question is is put about those who die in the catholic church Soares submits his opinion that the majority are saved since many die before they can sin 
mortally, and many others are fortified by the sacraments. Sorez is relatively optimistic in comparison with other Catholic theologians of his day. Peter Consensius and Robert Bellamon, for example, were convinced that most of the human race is lost. I'm going to have to, myself personally, agree with that. Because seeing how many people are so easily caught up especially with this transgenderism. Um, I mean, the other day I was listening to a report that they want to gender neutral, uh, neutral the toy stores. And that there are a lot of people who are caught up with that. I'm going to honestly say, no, I'm not optimistic. I'm not optimistic that a lot of people are saved. I'm not optimistic at all. I, I think that is sadly the church looking at the way things are now, the church is, losing its influence. I mean, it's going through its fourth death, as Fulton Sheen said, and I think Fulton Sheen was the last of the classicists who taught uh, this classical form of the, uh, theology and, and philosophy. He was the last one, and I haven't, I don't, you know, I know that um, that some people in the church um Dolan wanted to present <clears throat> Bishop Barron as the new Fulton Sheen. He's not. I just don't see a lot of people saved. I think there is a lot of people, especially what we went through last year with the protests and the riots and the the fighting and the pulling down of statues and the burning of churches and now what we're going through now with a lot of violence still, I just don't think a lot of people are saved. I don't believe it's, I, I'm, I'm with the, um, the others on the other school. Optimism is a human thing. You got to stick to the reality of the gospel and the reality of sin and the failure of many men in the church, especially many of them have fallen into the spirit of the age. I just don't think so. I don't think so. Um, okay, let's continue. The fathers of the church and the Catholic theologians of later ages to the effect that the majority of human uh, humankind, uh, humankind go to eternal punishment in hell even if the consensus be granted, however, is not binding because the theologians did not claim that their opinion was revealed or th that to take the opposite view was heretical. Nor is the opinion that most people attain salvation contradicted by the authoritative church teaching. That's true. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to agree with that because only God is the ultimate judge. But one has to be humble and one has to admit looking at the way how evil human beings are, how sin human beings have a tendency to run towards evil. You have to, you know, you, you know, you, you, you gotta be realistic. You can't live in a fantasy and, and live with this false optimism, a reasonable hope that all men are saved. I can't agree with that. I'm sorry. 
Okay, mention should here be made of minority opinion among some of the Greek fathers. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, okay, I mentioned him, Gregory of Nazanzine, uh, and Gregory of Nasia sometimes speak as though in the end all will be saved. Origen, the most prominent representative of this view, is generally reported as teaching that at the end of time the damned, now repentant and purified, will take part in the universal restoration of all things. That's, I, we don't know if he said that. A lot of Origen's works has been believed to have been corrupted, and a lot of people doubt that Origen's, he was quite a scholar, and I, I, we just don't have all his works. For some reason, a lot of it has been lost. Okay, uh, there's a Greek word here, which I can't, I don't read Greek. Three centuries after Origen's death, his views on this and several other topics were condemned. There you go, by the local council of Constantinople, convened by the emperor, Justinian, in A.D. 563. Even in his lifetime, however, Origen claimed that his adversaries has mis misunderstood or misrepresented him. Then he should have been more clear. Sorry. A number of distinguished scholars down through the centuries have defended his orthodoxy on the fate of the damned. The doctrine of, of the eternity of hell has been firmly in place at least since the 7th century and is not subject to debate in the Catholic Church. About the middle of the 20th century, there seems to be a break in the tradition. Uh, now we're going to get to the to to the complex to the problems of today. Since this number of influential theologians have favored the view that all human beings may or do eventually attain salvation, some examples may be illustrative. Il illustrative. Hmm. Okay, in a Reverier circulated among friends, but not published until after his death. The philosopher Jacques Martin included what he called a conjectural essay on eschatology, in which he contemplates the possibility that the damned, although eternally in hell, may be able at some point to escape from pains from, from pain in a response to the prayers of the saints. He imagines God may miraculously convert their wills so that from hating him, they come to love him. After being pardoned, they will then be delivered from the pain of sense and placed in a kind of limbo. They will still be technically in hell since they will lack the beatific vision, but they will enjoy a kind of natural felicity, like that of infants who die without baptism. <clears throat> At the end, he speculates even Satan will be converted. Okay, that's... that's <laughs> the first part was going far, and the second part, this part is going way too far. I mean, he's a philosopher. Uh, oh, boy will be converted and the fiery inferno while it continues to exist will have no spirits to afflict this 
as Martin acknowledged, is a bold conjecture, okay, since it has no support in scripture or tradition and contradicts the usual understanding of texts such as the parable of the last judgment scene of Matthew. But the theory has the advantage of showing how the blood of Christ might obtain mercy for all spiritual creatures, even those eternally in hell. He admits, he writes this, he comes up with this theory. This is the party I have no respect for. And and goes as far to to admit even even to admit that this is his own invention it's i'm sorry i i don't have i i don't have time for that but i'm it's one that has to be brought apart i just don't i just think it's ridiculous to even come up with it stick to what's actually is in the text and this in the scriptures and what the church teaches carl reiner another representative of the more liberal trend holds for the possibility that no one ever goes to hell. We have no clear revelation, he says, to the effect that some are actually lost. The discourse of Jesus on the subject appears to be admonitory rather than predictive. Their aim to persuade his hearers to pursue the better and safe path by alerting them the danger of eternal perdition, while allowing for the real possibility of eternal damnation, says Reiner, we must simultaneously maintain the truth of the omnipotence of universal salific will of God, the redemption of all by Christ, the duty of men to hope for salvation. Reiner therefore believes that universal, universal salvation is a possibility. This makes him a universalist. And the same thing with the, with the other one. It, it, I don't agree with this at all. But this, is, this has to be brought up. This probably these men's, their influence has, um, has influenced many people. All right, let's continue. The most sophisticated theological arguments among the among the conviction that some human beings in fact go to hell has been proposed by Hans Urs von Balthasar. This is the one that uh, influences Bishop Barron and, and I think many of our clergy today, even I think Pope Francis, ha, um, proposed by Hans Urs von Balthasar in his book, Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved. He rejects the idea that hell will be emptied at the end of time and that the damned souls and, and the demons will be reconciled with God. He also avoids asserting as a fact that everyone will be saved. But he does say that we have a right and even a duty to hope for the salvation of all because it is not impossible that even the worst sinners may be moved uh, it, it is not impossible that even the worst sinners may be moved by God's grace to repent before they die. He concedes, however, that the opposite is also possible. Since we are able to resist the grace of God, none of us is safe. We must therefore leave the question speculatively open, thinking primarily of the danger in which we ourselves stand. At one point in his book, Balthazar incorporates a long 
quotation from Edith Stein, now St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, who defends a position very like Balthazar, since God's all-merciful love, she says, descends upon everyone. It is probable that his love produces transforming effects in their lives to the extent that the people upon them uh, open themselves to that love to the extent that people open themselves to that love they enter into the realm of redemption on this ground stein finds it possible to hope that god's omnipotent love finds ways of so to speak outwitting human resistance balthazar says that he agrees with Stein. Okay, I'm honestly going to say this. I, I'm quite certain I haven't read any of Edith Stein's works. I haven't read any of her works. Um, I know who she is. I know she joined the Carmelites. I know she was influenced by Teresa of Avila's writings. But I can't help but think that... Remember, Stein is also speaking optimistically but i don't believe that she would go against church teaching she's speaking optimistically and this is the woman that died in the concentration camp because she came from jewish background she was a con she was a convert i don't think I, I i have a funny feeling he's misquoting her and he's taking her out of context we got to be careful sometimes these scholars are most likely are taking words from Edith Stein's mouth, her own writings, and twisting them to fit what their own theory. All right. This position of Balthazar seems to me to be <clears throat> orthodox, really. It does not contradict any ecumenical council or definitions of the faith. It can be reconciled with everything in Scripture, at least if the statements of Jesus on hell are taken as mandatory uh, rather than predictive. Bartolar's position, moreover, does not undermine a healthy fear of being lost, but the position is at least adventurous. It runs against the obvious interpretation of the words of Jesus in the New Testament. And again, the dominant theological opinion down through the centuries, which maintained that some, and in fact, very many, are lost. The convictions of early theologians that rel relatively few are saved rests, I suppose, uh, I, I respect, partly on the assumption that faith in Christ, baptism, and the adherence to the church on necessary, necessary conditions for salvation. The first two of these conditions are clearly set forth in the New Testament, and the third has been taught by many saints, councils, popes, and theologians. But these conditions can be interpreted more broadly than one might suspect. In recent centuries, it has become common to speak of implicit faith, baptism by desire, and membership in the soul of the church or membership in veto by desire. Vatican II declares that all people, even those who have never heard of Christ, receive enough grace to make their salvation possible. 
the church continues to insist the explicit faith reception of the sacraments and obedience to the church are ordinary uh, means to salvation. Pius IX in Syllabus of Errors, 1864, accordingly condemned the proposition we should at least have good hopes for the eternal salvation of those who are in no way, no way in the church of Christ. Pius XII in his encyclical, uh, in his encyclical on the mystical body of Christ, Misty Corpsey, 1943, taught that even those who are united in the church by bonds of implicit desire, a state that can by no means be taken for granted, still lack many precious means that are available in the church and therefore cannot be sure of their salvation. Vatican II said that anyone who knows the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ and refuses to enter or cannot be saved. If we accept these teachings, we will find it unlikely that everyone fulfills the conditions for salvation. Okay, let, let's read this uh, paragraph again a little bit more. The church continues to insist that explicit faith recaptions of the uh, reception of the sacraments. I'm sorry. The church continues to insist that explicit faith, reception of the sacraments, and obedience to the church are the ordinary means of, to salvation. Pius IX in the Syllabus of Errors, 1864, accordingly, con accordingly condemned the proposition, we should at least have good hope for the eternal salvation of those who are in no way in the true church of Christ. Pius XII in his encyclical on the mystical body of Christ Mystici Corpsis, uh, 1943, taught that even those who are united to church by bonds of implicit desire, a state that can by no means be taken for granted, still lack many precious means that are available in the church and therefore cannot be sure of their salvation. Vatican II said that anyone who knows that the, church, the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ and refuses to enter her cannot be saved. If we accept these teachings, we will find it unlikely that everyone fulfills the conditions for salvation. Pope John Paul II, in his Crossing of the Threshold of Hope, mentions the theory of Paldazar. After putting the, the question whether a loving God can allow any human being to be condemned to eternal torment, he replies, and yet the words of Christ are unequivocal. In Matthew's gospel, he speaks clearly of those who will go to eternal punishment. Matthew 25, verse 46. As justification for this assessment, the Pope puts the rhetorical question, can God, whose ultimate justice, tolerate terrible crimes and then let them go unpunished? Final punishment would seem to be necessary to reestablish the moral equi equi uh, equilibrium in the complex history of humanity. In the general audience talk of, Ju of July 28, 1999, the Pope seems to have justified his position, adopting, in effect, 
that of Balthazar, according to the English version of the text, he said, The Christian faith teaches that in taking the risk of saying yes or no, which marks the human creature creature's freedom, some have already said no. They are the spiritual creatures that rebelled against God's love and are called demons. The fourth ladder on council. What happened to them is a warning to us. It is a continuous call to avoid the tragedy which leads to sin and to conform our life to that of Jesus who lived his life with a yes to God. Eternal damnation remains the possibility, but we are not granted without special divine revelation the knowledge of whether or which human beings are effectively involved in it. The thought of hell and even less the improper use of biblical images must not create anxiety or despair, but it is a necessary and healthy reminder of freedom within the proclamation that that the risen Jesus had conquered Satan, giving us the Spirit of God who makes us cry, Abba, Father. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. The last sentence refers to the hope of, of, uh, of Christians for their own salvation and cannot be used to support any theory of universal salvation. But the preceding sentence indicates at least an openness to, to the opinion that we may hope for the salvation of all. We may hope for the salvation of all. We may hope. It's not a guarantee. Although the Pope may have abandoned his criticism of Balthazar, a number of theologians remain opposed. That's only a personal opinion. He wasn't speaking authoritatively. In a supplement to his books, Balthazar himself reports that one reviewer accused him of supporting the salvation of optimism, optimism that is rampant today and is both thoughtless and a temptation of thoughtlessness. At an international video conference uh, organized by the Holy See's Congregation for the Clergy last no uh, November, Jean Galat, with an apparent reference to Balthazar, said that the hypothesis of hell is a mere possibility, removes all effectiveness from the warning issued by Jesus, repeatedly expressed in the Gospels. At some conference, Father Michael F. Hall of New York um, contended that Balthazar's theory is tantamount to a rejection of the doctrine of hell and a denial of man's free will. That's true. In this uh, country, Father Regis Scanlon, uh, OFM, um, accused Balthazar of being Hegelian relativist who smuggles into the heart of the Catholic a serious doubt about the truth of the Catholic faith. Scandal himself takes takes it to be Catholic teaching that some persons, at least Judas, are in fact turning lost. This article set off an epic controversy between two Catholic editors, Richard John Newhouse and Dale Verrie, both of whom came to Catholic Christianity as adults.
Newhouse fired the opening silvo in the June-July 2000 issue of First Things. Defending Balthazar against Scanlon, he cited the passages from Pope crossing the threshold of hope mentioned above and referred also to his own book, Death on a Friday Afternoon, in which he had argued for several New Testament texts that although we cannot be certain, we may indeed hope and pray for the salvation of all. Dale Vary came back to the uh, to the New Oxford Review with an article titled "If Everyone Is Saved," defending Riga Scanlon and rejecting New uh, Newhouse exegesis of the biblical text he had quoted. He also claimed to have found a statement in Newhouse's book that could be interpreted as implying that everyone will be saved. Newhouse responded in first things that. Vries' attack was based on a misrepresentation. He had never taught the doctrine known as universalism, and namely that we, that all will be saved. He asserted only that we may hope that all will ultimately come to salvation. This probably should have been the end of the matter, but Vries, in the May 2001 issue of, I don't know what, N-O-N-R, insisted that he had not misread Newhouse's book and repeated his charges. Then, in, in its July-August 2001 issue, Nor published a defense of Newhouse by Jane Janet Hall Medgan, which made serious charges against Vree and against Noir itself. Vree responded in the same issue. In August-September, 2001 issue of Firstings contained Newell's own clarification of what he intended to say in his book. He presented an excellent case for holding that we may hope and pray for the salvation of all in an October 2001 editorial in NAR. Free expressed moderate satisfaction with Newhouse's clarification, but still had an objection to various statements that Newhouse had not retracted. Like Free, I accept the substance of this final intervention of Newhouse, but I find some obscurity in his argument. He says that certain Pauline texts, most which I have cited above, support universal redemption. If we give a priority to these passages, Newhouse argues that we have to interpret the gospel passage about damnation as admonitory, uh, admonitory and cautionary, solemn warnings of terrible possibility. I don't think so. I disagree with that. This is a long article. I didn't realize it was going to be this long, but it's it's good. Okay, Newhouse does not say, and I'm sure he does not mean, that Paul, in the passage he quotes, actually teaches universal salvation. If so, Paul would be turning the gospel warning into empty threats and would be taking a position contrary to the constant tradition of the church. I can agree that these optimistic passages take in isolation and could be interpreted as expressing confidence that all will be saved. But that interpretation is unacceptable. 
even as an interpretation of Paul's mind, because it runs counter to other texts, several which I have quoted above, in which Paul evidently supposes that some are in fact lost. My conclusion will be that even if we give full value to the Pauline passage quoted by Newhouse, the gospel warnings could still be understood as predictions that some will be condemned. Although uh, cons, um, contestable is Newhouse's speculation that perhaps the fate of Judas is that of total annihilation, the constant teachings of the Magisterium has been that re that unrepented sinners are sent to eternal punishment. Judas must be in hell unless he repented. It is unfair and incorrect to accuse either Balthazar or Newhouse, of teaching that no one goes to hell. They grant that it is probable that some or even many do go there, but they assert on the grounds that God is capable of bringing any sinner to repentance, that we have a right to hope and pray that all will be saved. The fact that something is highly improbable, need not prevent us from hoping and praying that it will happen. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, in, in hope the Church prays for all men to be saved, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, and the Catechism article is 1821, and, and at another point, the Catechism declares the church prays that no one should be lost, which is Article 1058. All right, let's look at this. This is interesting here, this part. One might ask at this point whether there has been any shift in Catholic theology on the matter. The answer appears to be yes, although the shift is not as dramatic as some imagine. The earlier pessimism was based on the unwarranted assumption that explicit Christian faith is absolutely necessary for salvation. This assumption has been corrected, particularly at Vatican II. There has also been a healthy reaction against the type of preaching that reveals in depicting the sufferings of the damned in the most lurid possible light. As an example would be the fictional sermon on hell that James Joyce recounts in his portrait of an artist as a young man. This kind of preaching fosters an image of God as an unloving, cruel tyrant, and in some cases leads to complete denial of hell or even to atheism. Today, a kind of thoughtless optimism is more prevalent error, in other words, a kind of thoughtless optimism is more prevalent error, quite apart from what theologians teach. Popular piety has become sathrin, unable to grasp the rational if, uh, for eternal punishment. Many Christians take it almost for granted that everyone or practically everyone must be saved. The mass for the dead has turned into a mass of the resurrection, which sometimes seems to celebrate 
not so much the resurrection of the Lord or the salvation of the seas without any reference to sin and punishment. More, more education is needed to convince people that they ought to fear God who, as Jesus taught, can punish souls and body together in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. The search for numbers in the de uh, demographic of hell is futile. God, in his wisdom, has seen fit not to disclose any statistics. Several sayings of Jesus in the gospel give the impression that the majority are lost. Paul, without denying the likelihood that some sinners will die without sufficient repentance, teaches that the grace of Christ is more powerful than sin. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Passages such as these permit us to hope that, every, that, that very many, if not all, will be saved. All told, it is good that God has left us without exact information. If we know that virtually everybody would be damned, we would be tempted to despair. If we know that all or nearly all are saved, we might become presumptuous. If we know that some fixed percent, say 50, would be saved, we would be caught in, in an uh, uh, caught in an unholy revelry. We would rejoice in a in every sign that others were among the law, since our own chances of election would thereby be increased, such as competitive spirit would hardly be compatible with the gospel. We are forbidden to seek out we are forbid we are forbidden to seek our own salvation in selfish, egotistical way. We are keepers of our brothers and sisters. The more we work for their salvation, the more of God's favor we can expect for ourselves. Those of us who believe and make use of the means of God of God has provided for the forgiveness of sins and for the reform of life have no reason to fear. We can be sure that Christ who died on the cross for us will not fail us will fail to give us the grace we need. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And that if we perceive in that love well, we, I'm sorry, we, we persevere in that love, nothing, whatever can separate us from Christ, as Romans chapter eight, verse twenty and thirty nine twenty of chapter eight, Romans chapter eight, twenty eight to thirty nine, that all the assurance we can have and should be enough. This is from Avery Cardinal Dulles. He's um oh a Jesuit holds um he he hold he held I don't know if he passed away. Well, anyway, he taught at Fordham University. I don't uh, and that he um and he uh, he I think he spoke wonderfully here. I think this is this is a pretty good article. Now the answer I think the simple answer is this I think we just work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We should not be caught up of trying to figure out what the population of hell is. No, we don't even know any more than what the population of heaven is. And I think we should be realistic about sin. We should be realistic about free will. We should be realistic about 
that God has given us the free will and the the will to say yes or no. I think for these theologians, if a theologian is if a theologian a philosopher is not clear in the way they if they use ambiguous words or they're not too sure how to express themselves they should be they should be really i think they should not publish their work okay you cannot you got to remember words are going to be unclear if if they are unclear they're going to be interpreted and abused and I think for anyone, whether uh, a philosopher or, um, or or a theologian or any particular scholar, should make him or herself clear. Make yourself clear. If you're uncertain about something, leave, make sure that the reader knows it's uncertain. But you're willing to be corrected. And I think it's wrong to publish anything and not, you know, and, and leave it, leave it, leave it for the, for the, uh, for the audience, because some people are going to run away with it. Like, you know, this whole thing I noticed with Balthazar from Robert Barron, even some who, who are trying to defend him, even Dulles here makes it quite clear that he didn't really say that. But then my problem is either the translation is bad or Balthazar just uh, regretfully made himself unclear because if you wrote something where it can be interpreted one way or another that's bad it's bad it's bad and I think it doesn't seem to be even after Dulles nothing seems to be clear with Balthazar and if Pope John Paul II changes opinion a little bit on Balthazar all right I'm willing to accept that but remember that's an opinion he's not speaking authoritatively Anyway, this is long enough as it is. And who knows, maybe we might even get a few more things in the future about this. But um, it's interesting. I think it's a, it's a very fascinating... Um, it's, it's a very fascinating subject, man. This is, I think, one of the interesting articles. Okay, so I'm going to end it here. Let's end it with an Our Father and a Hail Mary in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory now and forever. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God bless.